I'm Scott Goldman, the executive director of the Grammy Museum, and this is Required Listening. Each week in the Clive Davis Theater at the Grammy Museum, I get the opportunity to speak with great music artists across every genre from emerging to legendary about their careers, their process, their latest projects, and what inspires them to make great music. And I want to bring these conversations to you. On today's show, my conversation with Black Keys co-founder and frontman Dan Auerbach. Now, as you may know, the Black Keys announced themselves as a primal force in rock and roll back in 2002 with a real grounding in the blues. But these guys were not retro-minded purists. They really proved themselves to be songwriters of considerable depth with a real willingness to take you know, sonic chances as they progress through their career. And even though Dan had been living in Nashville for a period of years, the Keys were always touring. He didn't necessarily spend a lot of time at home. And as such, he felt like he didn't really know the music community in Nashville. Well, when the band finally took a hiatus, he took the time to build his own studio and put together a group of truly legendary musicians with whom he could make music. It's a remarkable thing to hear an artist talk about that process of discovery within his own community. We talked about his most recent album, Waiting on a Song. So let's go to the Clive Davis Theater and listen to my conversation with Dan Auerbach. Would you please welcome Dan Auerbach. All right. All right. It's actually nine Grammys. Nine Grammys? Did I get that wrong? Damn. <laughs> Sorry. Thank you all for being here. Good night. <laughs> um, thank you for coming. Appreciate it. Um, and thank you for correcting me on my bad math, I guess. Um, so you've called... I, I want to talk about the new record, and then we'll, we'll wind the videotape back at, you know, at some point. Okay. But you've called this record a love letter to Nashville. Yeah, sort of. How sort so? Sort of, something like that. Yeah, how so? I mean, I, it was for the first time... I've lived in Nashville for eight years, but... Um, like you said, I, I've been on the road touring, yeah. so this was sort of the first time I ever got to settle in in Nashville and get into the scene there and, and start doing Nashville things like songwriting sessions, mm -hmm. stuff like that, which I'd never done before. So I guess that's why it's so Nashville, the record. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, you talk about the songwriting sessions, and, you know, there's a whole tradition, as I'm sure you learned, in Nashville about songwriting and, you know, you have the 10 a.m. co-write with whoever and the 12 p.m. co-write with, and you talked around the time of El Camino, yeah. you talked about working with Brian Burton, Danger Mouse, and how that was unusual for you in, in terms of writing with somebody yeah, else. absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, Pat and I were always very reluctant to let anyone into our world, you know? I mean, we started recording on a four track, you know, in the basement, we were just so young and kind of insecure. We didn't, you know, we were too afraid to ask anybody for help. So we just did our own way yeah. and kind of had some success. So we just never, I mean, we didn't record in a proper studio until our fifth, fifth record. Hmm. But when it came time to do this record, you're, you know, you're co-writing, you're working with other people, you, you know, it's kind of in that Nashville thing. Have you become more comfortable in terms of co-writing? I mean... I didn't even really know what co-writing was all about until a year and a half ago. Um, 
Yeah, I'm really comfortable with it. Uh-huh. Because it's, the thing about it is it should be easy. I mean, if you get paired with the right person and you have the right chemistry, that's what you're looking for, you know? Kind of it, it's someone to help the momentum grow. And I met some people like that. And, you know, I mean, I could have gotten together with Prine and maybe nothing would have happened, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, but it, it did. It worked. Yeah. And uh, we wrote six or seven songs together, you know? I have to, you, I mean, John Prine, literally, and for those of you who might not know John Prine, I would encourage you to go check him out. A treasure yeah. in American music, as far as one person is concerned. It, you, first of all, how'd you, how'd you meet the guy? I met him through my friend Fergie, David Ferguson. David Ferguson. Yeah, he yeah. was um, he was a protege of a guy named Cowboy Jack Clement, yes. who's very important in Nashville music. He was sort of the guy who started to think outside of the box in Nashville. Nashville was Music City a long time ago, long before Cowboy got there. He used to work for Sam Phillips in, yes. in Memphis. But he moved to Nashville, and he had these huge hit records with people like Charlie Pride and uh, Don Williams and... So anyway, Fergie learned from him, and he met all these great people, and and I guess I've just sort of been meeting people through Fergie since yeah. I moved to Nashville. Yeah. I met him when I first moved to town. Yeah, he was kind of uh, Fergie. I mean, he he was kind of your your introduction to the music community. Yeah, he introduced in me to tons of people. Yeah, and and Prime was one of them. Yeah, yeah. and the, he brought me to see Prime for the first time at Station Inn in Nashville. And you said about that, when, when you saw him at the station and you said seeing him is something, and this is a quote, that can change you. Yeah. And I'm wondering what, what changed about you after you saw Prine? Well, I mean, I was familiar with his music, but I don't think you can really get the whole full experience until you see him in person. I think that's where he really shines, you know? I still don't think he's made a record as strong as he is when you see him in person. Mm. And for me, it was just... I was just kind of bowled over by the simplicity of it all. And he was also playing in a way that reminded me of all the songs that I learned as a kid from my mom's family, bluegrass songs, Hmm. finger-picked folk songs, you know, (laughs) that he was playing in that style. So for me, I just felt an immediate connection to it. But also, it was just how beautiful his songs are, how simple they are. You know, he never tries to go over your head. He always hits the bullseye, you know? Yeah. And actually, listen, listening to the record, we'll talk about some of the songs in a minute, but listening to the record, you can hear Prine. Mm-hmm. You can definitely hear, hear him there. Um, you know, when, when you did Keep It Hid, and as you were writing those songs, this record is a departure from that. I, I would describe it, and don't take this the wrong way, as a particularly sunny, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. album. Yeah. How would you describe it? I mean, I've heard that a lot, and I think that these songs, this collection of songs, it, it does have an uplifting feeling to it. And it, it's a direct result of how I felt when I made the music. You know, I was just, it was pure joy every day. Yeah. At home, in the studio, writing and recording with some of these musicians who have made some of my favorite records of all time. You know, I mean, I was like... You know, elated every day. Yeah, you know one of the, one of the things you, you've talked about is you know in your in your past life, you worked at a record store. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Quonset Hut, Quonset Hut Records. In, yeah, in Akron, yeah. Ohio. Yeah, one of my first jobs out of college was Tower Records, Columbus and Bay, San Francisco. Nice. But be, you know, be that as as it may, you were looking at these album 
jackets. And unfortunately, this is something that is lost to generations lately. And looking at the names of the people who played on these records. And mm -hmm. over time, you would come to realize that the records that you love, man, a lot of, a lot the, of names, the same names. A lot of the same names. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. And I'm, and, I'm, and I'm wondering, these guys that you put on this album... You know, how many times did you see their names before? Yeah, so I had some people on this record, people like Bobby Wood, who played, uh, he played the organ on uh, Hey There, Little Red Riding Hood by Sam the Sham. He played on uh, Son of a Preacher Man by Dusty Springfield and In the Ghetto and Suspicious Minds by Elvis Presley. and uh, At American Sound. At American Sound Studios yeah. for Chip's Moment. Yeah. yeah, and, you know, he cut Neil Diamond, uh, Sweet Caroline. Uh, sweet Caroline. Just, uh, bum, just consider bum, consider bum. this, by the way. I mean, it's just one dude. Bobby wrote that part. The bump, bump, bump. <laughs> he did. <laughs> he wrote awesome. it. He wrote it on the keyboard, and then yeah. they covered it up with horns. Yeah, yeah. So as you're, I mean, as and the way there's one more thing about go, Bobby. Go there's there's go ahead. there's a YouTube audio of a recording session from the Elvis Presley sessions, and. Uh, there's a section where you can listen. There's like this long 24 minute. They just let the tape roll while they're rehearsing. Yeah. And you hear Elvis singing. And then you hear somebody go, no, 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 Elvis, no, no. It's like this. And then sings it. And then, and then you hear Elvis go, thank you, Bobby Wood. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. If that were me, my career, I'm done. I'm done. Elvis that's, says that's, thank uh, you. So, you know, but as as you're as you're working with those guys, is the bubble over your head going? These dudes played with Elvis. This is like the coolest I mean, thing I could be doing. Yes and no. I mean, at the same time, you know that I worship them. I also feel so connected to them in a way that I haven't felt connected to certain people. You know, we both huh. have this similar addiction. You know, I mean, all they've ever done is make music in the studio for a living. Mm -hmm. That's it. You know, that's all I've ever done. You know, and uh, we just met in, in Nashville, and now we've we've been working constantly together. Yeah, on all kinds of different projects. Yeah, you said something really interesting. You produced a record with Dr. John, I think, yeah. in 2012, Lockdown. Mm -hmm. um, terrific album. But one of the things you said about that, which I think is so important, is you did not treat him as, and this is in quotes, an antiquity. Yeah. In other words, like some sort of like a precious egg, right, right, so, or something caught in amber. You know, yeah. you pushed him to to be, you know, his best. And I'm wondering, you produced this record, uh -huh. and as a producer, I'm wondering, did you kick these guys in the ass a little bit? Which guys? The uh, you in know, Doctor John session? Yeah. Well, no, no, no. The dudes on this record. Did I kick him in the ass? I think that they were ready. They were really? ready for me. Yeah. It's almost like they'd been laying dormant. Do you know huh. what I mean? Huh. They've been working the system, you know, playing sessions and yeah. stuff. But they, all of them have independently told me that they're like, this is how it felt when we were making records. Huh. Because there's so much creativity. Anything goes. I mean, you know, Bobby and, and his buddy who plays drums for me, uh, Gene Chrisman, he, we call him Bubba. He and Bobby have been playing together forever. But they've been on number one country hits. They've been number one soul hits, number one pop hits. Yeah. But... They never really thought about it. They were just they were just making music. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I love that about those guys, and that's why they fit in so well. I mm. think. You know, you, you also had 
someone who's who's a hero to many people, Dwayne Eddy. Yeah, Dwayne. Is, is is on this record. Dwayne, who li- who's lived in Nashville for many many years. Yeah, and I'm wondering, did you have that sound of Rebel Rouser? You know that guitar sound in your head when he walks in the studio. Dwayne is like uh, seventy nine, I think. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, but he's really tall and he's got perfect posture. He wears all black. He's always got cowboy boots on, and he's got a, a hat on, like a big black hat. Yep. So hell yeah, that of course. Like, <laughs> <laughs> when did you when did you first hear Dwayne Eddy? What was your first introduction to Dwayne Eddy? He would have been on radio growing yep. up. I knew all his songs just from from hearing him in the ether while I was a kid. Those are the kind of songs that you just know instinctually. There are certain artists who, who uh, did, for whatever reason, they just become part of your DNA. Yeah. You know, you hear well, them. Well, Dwayne Eddy was kind of one of the inventors of rock and roll guitar. Yeah. I mean, if not the. And, you know, he also started in the studio with mm-hmm. Lee Hazelwood mm-hmm. in Phoenix, you know, and they came up with a sound experimenting in the studio. So Dwayne loves being, he's a studio rat, just yeah. like all of us. So, I mean, he was there all the time. Just, he was like my session guy. <laughs> he was playing on sessions whatever the song needed he was there yeah as you were going through the the songwriting process and you, and you talked about you know particularly as as you were doing keep it hid you were inspired a little bit by charles bukowski the you know the great writer and you were look at, you were interested in and i actually wrote this down unfancy interesting language yeah just like john prine same thing you know, someone Talk about that a little who's bit. able, I mean, that's, I love that. I mean, that's, it's, it's the similar thing that they have where they're able to do so much or so little, you know, mm. and, mm. and that people who are able to do that, I find to be the most interesting to me. You yeah. know what I mean? Uh, when you can, with the most simplest ingredients, um, make something so potent, mm. I find that to be really inspiring. You know, one, one of the other, um, you, you've got Mark Knopfler. Mm-hmm. On on this record, speaking of guitar players, first of all, how'd you get him on the record? We emailed him. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. And he just said, yeah, I'll do this? Well, we cut we cut this song called Shana Me. And I went back into the control room to listen to playback. And I was sitting at the console and I was listening and I, I just, I could hear his guitar. I could hear it on the song. So that night, we did a rough mix. I sent it to my manager. And I, I said, can you please find Mark Knopfler and send him this song? <laughs> send him this song. And ask him very nicely if he would want to participate in any way. I didn't give him any instructions or anything. And then two days later, we got the song back with his guitar. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, if you listen to the song, you can absolutely identify yeah. where, where Knopfler but, I mean, is in it the was, song. It was just sort of like, I think that's sort of one of the things that I took from doing all these sessions and working with all these guys, like, you know, if it's meant to be, it'll happen. And if it's not, it won't, you know, yeah. And, yeah. and that's sort of the fun of it. Yeah. You know? And Mark came through and it was awesome because so, he did exactly what the song needed to, which was so interesting. Which, which you had no pre- preconceived notions about. And I'm wondering yeah, when you, you, got, it when you got the track player, and you listened to it, you send it to a guitar player and you assume that the guitar player is going to do a guitar solo. You know what I mean? He didn't. He, he just didn't. played the rhythm guitar. That's what the song needed. That's all it needed. He knew what it needed. Just like all these guys I'm working with. That's why I knew he'd like he'd connect with it because uh, he just uh, I know that he's worked with Chet Atkins and 
He's got a lot of respect for Nashville. I just knew that he would understand yeah. it, and he did. It was so great. Uh, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, because you've, you've talked about how you've lived in Nashville s- since 2010, but you really didn't get acquainted with it until mm. more recently. And I'm wondering if, if you've learned something about, you know, working with people who have this level of experience that you don't necessarily need to tell them what to do. They have well, an understanding. That's something I learned with Bri- working with Brian Burton. Yeah. That opened my eyes to, if you let the right people in, they make what you do better. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or they can excite you in a way that pushes you to new levels of creativity. Yeah. So, I mean, after learning that, yeah, I always had my mind open, kept my ears open, heard about some of these people, you know, made, made weird phone calls and <laughs> re- reached out to these people yeah. that I hadn't met. And it was like... If it was meant to be, it was going to be meant to be. And and I just met this incredible crew of of people. Mm. I mean, you've definitely talked about how this experience and, and really kind of becoming acquainted with these players in Nashville has changed your thinking about recording. Yeah, I mean, you know, I have been producing records for a long time, and I'd, I'd used a lot of these guys on some records. You yeah. know, I use some of these people on this record played on the Lana Del Rey record, Ray Lamontine. Just other things that I made, Dr. John record, some yeah. of these people played on. So, but I think I really assembled a group at this point. You know what I mean? I was using one guy here, one guy there. But th- now I sort of almost have this crew that are always there, that we always work together. Mm. It's just different. It's like having the toolbox fully stocked yeah. with all the yeah. snap-on tools. Yeah. You know? <laughs> nice. Well, and the expensive speak- ones. Yeah, and speaking <laughs> and speaking of the expensive snap-on tools. So this was done at Easy Eye Studio, which is which is Easy your Easy Eye Sound in Nashville. Easy Eye Sound, which is yeah, which is your studio. studio in Nashville. And you've described this as your field of dreams. Well, that's what it, it became, really. Because I built it because I wanted to have a space like the studios that made the records I loved, like High Studios and, and American Sound and Stax and Motown and all of these great places that you could record a whole band in a room. So that's what I wanted. I didn't know the musicians, but I knew that's what I wanted. So <laughs> I built the studio and then little by little, like I said, I met all these people and now it's packed every week. <laughs> and I got a crew. Drums haven't moved in two years. All the amps are set up. I mean, everybody, no one, Got brings, in, out, you no know, one exactly. brings instruments anymore. Yeah, it's just yeah. they're, we're huh. ready to go all the time. Huh. I'm, I'm wondering now that you've got this set up, as you bring other artists to this, has it changed your thinking about producing? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I def- definitely have, like I said, different tools now to use. Mm-hmm. And I the possibilities are kind of endless now. But that's the fun about making records, that it doesn't have to be any one thing, you yeah. know, and it's it's different every time. So, yeah. But I can do, I feel like I can do anything now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do want to roll the, the video back a little bit and talk about your early career. You grew up Akron, Ohio. Yeah. Um, your uncles were bluegrass players. My uncle, yeah, my uncle's my aunt. Yeah. Yeah, they all played bluegrass and, and, um, and folk songs and blues songs and... Uh, those were the first songs that I heard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And my mom plays piano too, but she's more classical. Yeah. Is there, a, particularly at a young age, I'm wondering what you were hearing, besides maybe what was being played around the house, what were you hearing maybe on the radio or... Well, my or... dad had record collection and that was stocked and he was like, you know, an old hippie. So he had 
Grateful Dead was on all the time. Almond Brothers were on all the time. Uh, he had the Beatles on all the time, you know, but then he also played Sam Cooke and Otis Redding and uh, Louis Jordan. And, yeah. Uh, I guess this so, qualifies me as an old hippie, but um, <laughs> it's all the stuff I listened to. Uh, but, uh, you know. So, yeah, that stuff was yeah. on all the time, and it was the combination of all that, plus whatever's on the radio. I mean, I swear to God, I know every Tom Petty song. I've never even owned a Tom Petty record. <laughs> That's like Northeastern Ohio radio, rock radio, man. They just yeah. pumped out the jams all, yeah. all, yeah. Yeah. all well, day, hey, that every goes day. Back, that goes back to being in your DNA. You know, you hear exactly. this stuff and it just gets in there. And yeah. it, you, you know the words and you don't even know right. why you know the words. And then, but I mean, growing up in the 90s when I was in middle school, you know, it's like hip hop was really popular. So I had all this different music around me all the time. Yeah. We were talking about guitar players and, and I have to ask you because... When you hear this guy, I immediately hear the Black Keys, and that's Junior Kimbrough. Yeah. Tell me about the first time you heard Junior Kimbrough. Well, the first time I heard Junior Kimbrough was on a Fat Possum. That, that was his record label, Fat Possum mm -hmm. Records. And um, they did a comp with a very beautiful black and white photograph from, of a woman dancing in this cement. Looked like a basement or something. <laughs> Bunker. And it ended up being Junior's juke joint, his yeah. club that he owned yeah. that he played in every week. And there's a compilation of all these different artists, Arl Burnside, T Model Ford, Robert Belfour, Johnny Farmer, Jelly Roll Kings. Mm -hmm. And it had Junior Kimber on there. And um I wasn't into it at first. I didn't quite understand it. Hmm. It was a little too weird. But I slowly got into it. And then all of a sudden, I realized I wasn't listening to anything but <laughs> Yeah, it was sort of like that. It crept on, and then it just, it was sort of like weeds, you know? <laughs> and then it just took over. Yeah. Well, because you took, and, you know, to, to one person's ears, you took what Junior Kimbrough was doing, and you kind of moved it into, for lack of a better term, the modern world. You know, you, you turned it up a little bit. You gave it a maybe even more grit than he had. Yeah, definitely a lot more, I think. Yeah. I go back and listen. I'm like, ooh, he was playing kind of quiet. <laughs> <laughs> I always used to think that was really rocking. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Yeah. And um, the early Black Keys records were, were all done, I think, in your basement. Well, yeah, we did some in Pat's original rental house basement. Mm -hmm. That was on Richmond Place. Yeah. And um, then he moved, and he had his four-track over at his other house. And, and then we rented a space in, a, in the old General Tire factory building on the second floor. Hmm. Terrible building. Really frightening. <laughs> Big, how, how so, so scary. We were the only people in this giant tire factory at night. It was so scary. <laughs> I was scared to go to the bathroom. <laughs> it was just huh. a nightmare. And, you know, really. And, it's really you know, cheap, though. Very yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, that I'm sure. It's incredibly yeah. cost effective. Yeah. It's you it's you and Pat, guitar and drums. That no consideration that there should be a bass player <coughs> well, or No, or, that's not totally true. I mean, we wanted to have other people in the yeah. group when we started, but we couldn't find anybody. It's not like there was a huge scene in Akron, Ohio. And I mean, I was like listening to Arl Burnside so add on to that, it's like not a lot of <laughs> like, dudes who is my this age dude? <laughs> who want to listen to that kind of stuff. So yeah. or even understood it yeah. on any level. How did, how did you meet Pat? He grew up around the corner from me. Mm. So I always knew him. Mm. He's just somebody I always knew. But he was a grade apart from me. He was a year younger. So you know how when you're in school, one grade is like a lot is like yeah. a, a lifetime. Yeah, a lifetime. Yeah. 
So I never saw him. But his younger brother and my younger brother were best friends. And so one afternoon, my brother said, hey, you know Pat? And I'm like, no, who's that? And he said, Pat, <laughs> from around the corner, he, he said he has a drum kit. You should bring your guitar amp over there. And so that was it. So we uh, brought my guitar amp over there, and we started jamming. And, and I mean, we kind of got a record deal off of those recordings from the basement. Yeah. First guitar. What was your first guitar? Well, I bought, my mom bought me a Strat, but I wanted to have a guitar like Hound Dog Taylor. He played a Japanese Taisco. It's called Taisco Del Rey. And there's M-I-J. Four, four big pickups. On yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I wanted. So she took me to this place in Cleveland where this guy had a guitar shop. He played in the ZZ Top cover band. So he had a big <laughs> beard. <laughs> beard and, and I was like, hey, I want to trade this for this Japanese guitar. And the Japanese guitar was probably worth $75. Strat was probably worth 800 He was yeah, like, yeah. sure, man. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Done. Done. Fair. That seems fair to me. <laughs> we'll, we'll even throw in a gig, gig bag. So, uh, but I still, I still use the guitar. Though. Yeah. Well, and, and I must say, as someone who fancies some guitars, I recall seeing you guys at um, the jazz festival, New Orleans Jazz Festival, a couple of years, a few years ago. Um, and the rig you have of the amps that go from the largest down to the smallest <laughs> that is just you know when you just we, wheel that thing out it's there it's obnoxious yeah. <laughs> in the best possible way <laughs> just all giant tax write-off yeah. <laughs> uh, everything i can fit <laughs> you know one one thing going going back to to waiting on a song I read that the, the musicians that you were working with were all responding very positively to the way you were doing this because you were recording most of this live on the floor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, the, the foundation of every song is a live performance with at least five or six musicians. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Talk about the, the difference that makes to you as a producer in terms of what you're trying to get out of the song. Well, I mean, I think that it's hard to really put into words, I guess. You're just trying to capture magic, really. Mm. I mean, you can get the greatest musicians in the world, but it just might not be your day sometimes, mm. you know? So I felt like the more we did it, the more we kept our odds up. It's sort of like a betting game. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I learned a lot from these guys, kind of like to let the song breathe and kind of get out of the way of my own self sometimes. Yeah. You know, how to open the songs up and... Uh, yeah, I mean, there's just all kinds of little delicate things that happen. That That's an interesting point in terms of thinking about where you were recording in that factory in Akron to where you are today. How do you, how do you think you've evolved or changed as a songwriter? You know, it's like the more things change, the more they stay the same. You know what I mean? I feel like I have learned so many things and I've gotten better, but my base instincts are kind of still the same as they've always been. Do you know what I mean? I feel like my DNA was fixed a long time ago, and I still always go back to certain things that I do that are just a part of who I am musically. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess with the way the world is now where you can change everything so instantaneously, and I think one of the things I learned from these guys was to, like I said, get out of my own way and mm. just... Not really worry too much, not not overthink it, you know, and uh, 
just the idea of um, having simple be okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, love I didn't idea. even really know how to do it when I first started. You know what I hmm. mean? Just all over the place. Yeah. But I, you know, I love the idea the of not, not necessarily overthinking it. One of my favorite quotes, and some people here have probably heard me say this before, Neil Young mm-hmm. said um, about working in the studio, if you're thinking, you're stinking. Yeah. Yeah, and, exactly. And, and many artists seem to sign up to that What you want to What you want to really accomplish is you want the song to just flow out naturally, mm. but it's six, seven, eight people. So it's luck, really. <laughs> yeah. You just have to feel it, and you'll hear it in the headphones when you're tracking. If you mm. feel, you know, you, that's, the, that's the thing you get addicted to, is because when it works, the songs sound like that in the headphones when you're yeah. cutting yeah. it. Yeah. The ones that you end up hearing a year later yeah. when the record comes out. But that first moment when you hear it, it's incredible. And when I'm playing with all these guys, Bobby and Bubba, mm-hmm. it's like some people say the record sounds like it has soul influences. But it's it's like, no, actually the guys playing on the record invented soul music, sort of. Do you know what <laughs> I mean? Did. And I'm yeah. hearing these guys in my headphones playing things that sound like a record. I'm hearing <laughs> this record in my mind, and that's just so addictive. Yeah. yeah. And I also read that you guys would, would do these sort of marathon kind of sessions where in four days you'd, you'd put down 15 songs. Yeah. We try to do about three or four a day. Is working quickly important? I think so. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you don't want to overthink it. If it's not, mm-hmm. if it's not happening, it's not happening for a reason, generally. Hmm. And you should kind of move on. Yeah, there, and there were there were something like I, I think sixty songs that you had to choose from for I, this album. Yeah, there's more than that. I mean, really? Just, yeah. yeah there, 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 so I recorded a couple hundred songs in the last year. Yeah. So how do you ultimately kind of go about the business of figuring out? Well, okay, I, what's going to be on the record? I picked one or two that I knew I wanted to be on the record, mm-hmm. and then I picked ones that went with those couple, and that sort of shaped how the record ended up sounding. Got it. So. Got it. These 10 songs together sound very uplifting, but I mean, yeah. the course of 200 songs, there's all kinds of yeah. Does that vari- mean variation. There, there, there could be a waiting on, waiting on a song part two at yeah. some point down the road? Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I you mean, heard, I haven't, you heard it here first. I haven't way. stopped, really. I mean, yeah, really? Uh, yeah, not, not really. Yeah, I yeah. mean, since last summer, I've been writing and recording every week, pretty <laughs> much. Yeah. Yeah. Are you planning on taking this on the road? Are you going to, you going to tour with these guys? We or? Don't, I'm not opposed to the idea, but we we don't have any plans right now. Yeah. 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 We've been talking about it, though. And I mean, you've been touring fairly relentlessly prior, yeah. to, prior to doing this record, you know, with Patrick and with the ARCs yeah. for four years. Yeah. And, and at some point, you know, I guess you, you kind of felt like it was time to stop doing that. Oh, yeah. It was... It, it's so grueling. It's such a grueling lifestyle. And the way that Pat and I did it was like we acted like we might never see another dollar bill again. <laughs> I think it has to, something to do with being cheapskates <laughs> from Akron, Ohio. But that's how we did it. And, I mean, when I decided to stop touring last summer to take a break, yeah, sure. we'd been touring for like four years straight yeah. pretty much. I'm sure it's in your mind at some point to put to put that back together. Oh yeah, sure, definitely. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Any 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 plans to be writing with Patrick anytime no, soon? No, no, yeah. no plans at the moment. Yeah, still just enjoying our nice vacation. Yeah, 
Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the reaction so far to this record, everything that I've read, has been incredibly positive. Yeah, it's been really overwhelmingly positive. Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, radio stations, plane cuts, you know, God knows Outlaw Country that I happen to listen to on Sirius XM has been playing the record. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Outlaw Country. Yeah, yeah. Happ <laughs> happens to be uh, Sirius XM Channel 60. Happens to be my favorite Sirius XM channel. What's that? Mojo. Mojo Nixon, exactly. Yeah. yeah okay. Crazy Mojo Nixon. Bobby and Bubba, he, they toured with the Highwaymen. Yep, well, there you go. There you With, go. Uh, when we, we just went to New York City and Bubba's suitcase said Waylon on it. <laughs> it was the one that he said Waylon bought it for me when we went on tour. He said, "I'm we, sorry, we, I'm done." If someone says that, he said, me. "Those guys, all the backup musicians, whenever they did a tour in South America for the yeah. Highwaymen, it's yeah. Christopherson, Johnny Cash, yeah. Waylon, and Willie. Willie. Yep. But he said they did a whole tour of South America, and the first thing they did when they landed was look for." The, uh, the embassy, which was the McDonald's. <laughs> that was what they looked for first. I read that you've developed a friendship with, with Prine. Yeah. Um, um, and that you, you, you guys go out and eat and get hot dogs well, yeah. together. Yeah, we, we always eat food that's really bad for you, basically. <laughs> well, he's from Chicago, so I'm not surprised that hot dogs he, are he, on uh, the list. He um, knows where the meatloaf special is every day of the week. <laughs> and uh, we uh, we wrote waiting on a song, and then um, we went to White Castle. <laughs> Perfect. When, 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 and then we came back and we finished another song. <laughs> when I first started going to Nashville in like nineteen, White Castle was like the palate cleanser. Oh, oh yeah, no, I get it. Yeah. In between the songs, yeah. When I first started going to Nashville in 92, White Castle was, was about as good as it got. Uh -huh. It was either that or what they, they call down there a meat and three. Yeah. Because you, 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 know, you get your tray, you get a, your meat and three sides. Yeah, and the, the sides can also be meat. It's <laughs> <laughs> very that's confusing. The thing, that's the thing about the South that's really cool. <laughs> that vegetables can also be meat. <laughs> Well, hey, can I tell you how pleased we are that you took the time to come yeah, down here thank and you. talk about this record? It is terrific. So the album is called Waiting on a Song. If you don't have it, you should get it. Wouldn't we all like to spend a little time eating hot dogs with Dan Auerbach and John Prine? I don't know about you, but that would be a singular goal in my life. Waiting on a Song is really a terrific album. I encourage you to have a listen if you haven't already. That's your required listening for today. We'll be coming to you every week on Thursdays. You'll find us on all the social platforms at Grammy Museum. We'd love to keep the conversation going. And if you're coming to Los Angeles, please come and see us at the Grammy Museum. All of the information is at our website, grammymuseum.com. Org. Check out the public program schedule. We'd love to have you in the Clive Davis Theater as we do one of these programs. Finally, a big thank you to the required listening team, Jason James, Justin Joseph, Miranda Moore, Lynn Sheridan, Jim Canella, Kittrick Kearns, Jason Hoke, Chandler Mays, Nick Stumpf, and everybody at How Stuff Works. Until next time, I'm Scott Goldman.